0: Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph, and I'm Sham. A blue moon is a phenomena that only occurs every two to three years, in which an extra full moon occurs during a single seasonal lunar cycle. Some believe a blue moon can wreak havoc with all magical forces, causing witches' powers to become erratic and unpredictable. In 2015, Pensacola, Florida police shocked everyone when they claimed the murder of a mother and her two sons was the work of witchcraft, and more specifically, the forces of the Blue Moon. Vonsel Hammock, who went by Bonnie, was born June 23, 1937, in Bruton, Alabama, into a family of generational farmers. Bonnie's family had been among the early revolutionaries in newly minted America in the early 1700s. They were a strict Baptist family, so when Bonnie got pregnant as a teenager and gave birth to her first son, whom she named Donald, options were limited for her. Donald's father wanted nothing to do with him and abandoned them when Donald was only a few months old. Disowned by her religious family, alone and with a baby at such a young age, life wasn't easy for Bonnie and Donald for a while. Bonnie would find love again at the age of 27 when she met a handsome Navy sailor named Richard A. Smith, who accepted and loved both Bonnie and her son. Together, they had two more sons, Richard Thomas, who preferred to be called R.T., and two years later, John William. By all accounts, they were a normal, happy family living in the suburbs of Pensacola, Florida. Bonnie, especially, was a sweet Southern woman who loved her children and enjoyed making handmade pins for people to wear. Eventually, Donald moved out on his own, married, and had a son he named Donald Jr. It's unclear why his half-brothers John and RT never moved out of their parents' home, but any plans for striking out on their own disappeared in 2012 when Bonnie's husband Richard passed away. They weren't going to leave their elderly mother alone. By that time, there was already a strain on the once-happy family. According to Leslie Acosta with ABC News, Donald's son, Donald Jr., testified in court that his uncle John had exposed himself to him when he was a little kid. He alleged that when it happened, he told his parents and Donald Sr. confronted Bonnie about John's behavior. According to Donald Jr.'s testimony, Bonnie defended John and refused to believe he would do something like that. This, of course, caused a rift between Donald Senior and his mother, as well as a festering anger towards his half-brother, John.
1: Okay, it's incredibly sad when you toss a child's claims of sexual abuse to the side. Even though his grandmother didn't believe him, I am glad that his father stood by his side.
0: His parents did the right thing in believing him and protecting him from further contact with the abuser, no matter who it is or what other members of the family choose to
1: believe. Exactly. So did they ever actually handle these claims or they just sat there and ignored it?
0: While the incident damaged the relationship between Donald and the rest of his family, after their father Richard died, they seemed to come together as a family again. By 2015, they seemed like a typical close, loving family again. Donald even came over for family dinner every Tuesday night. Bonnie was 77 and spent her days peacefully watching and ordering from QVC shopping shows. RT was a well-liked and respected IT specialist for Homeland Security, and John had happily worked at the last 20 years collecting carts for the local Walmart. The family was very close with each other, but kept to themselves otherwise and never socialized with neighbors. Many neighbors had never even spoken to anyone in the Smith family at all in the nearly 30 years that they had lived there. I won't speculate as to why John still lived with his mother well into his late 40s, But a friend shed some light on R.T.'s reasoning for never leaving home. His friend told Colin Warren Hicks at the Pensacola News Journal that R.T. once confided that he gave up his personal life for the sake of his family. He confessed that he wanted it all, marriage, children, a home of his own, but he knew it was his responsibility to take care of his parents and his brother John. Every morning, R.T. woke up at 5 a.m. to make sure his brother John was ready for work at 7 a.m., then he would get ready for his own workday. Donald worked at a security guard at Sacred Heart Hospital at the time. On July 28th, 2015, after work, Donald came over as he did every Tuesday night and cooked dinner for his mother and his half-brothers. RT didn't like being around Donald and would often work late or make plans with friends on Tuesday nights. When RT arrived home, he was irritated to find Donald still hanging around. Neighbors also noticed Donald's later than usual departure from his mother's house that night, as well as the odd fact that he drove away without turning on his headlights for quite a ways down the road. No one gave
1: it much thought at the time, though. Okay, so I can understand why RT's main focus was taking care of his mother. I mean, I'm a daddy's girl, and even though I have a family now, if he needed to be taken care of prior to my children and husband, he would be my number one priority. Now, as far as Donald going so far off his routine that the neighbors notice, that's pretty concerning.
0: I guess, but he was visiting his mother and his brothers for their weekly family dinner. It would be easy to understand if they got caught up talking or playing games the time got away from them or something. I don't think I would even notice if this happened at my neighbor's house.
1: Yeah, I mean, I understand no one putting much thought into what may look like an off day for a neighbor. I definitely don't notice mine. (laughs)
0: Well, that was until three days later when R.T. still hadn't shown up for work, which was not like him at all. Since he worked for Homeland Security, his unplanned absence was taken very seriously. R.T.'s colleagues called and texted him, but all attempts went unanswered. On July 31st, R.T.'s supervisor, Hal McCord, went to the house to make sure he was okay. After knocking and ringing the bell for a while, they contacted police and asked them to do a welfare check. The county sheriff's deputy, Andrew Smith, no relation to the family, was the first to respond to the call for the welfare check. He didn't see any signs of forced entry, and several QVC packages were untouched on the front stoop. He called Donald, who appeared to be calm and relaxed as he gave the officer permission to enter the home.
1: All right, conjurers, here we go. This is where shit gets real.
0: (laughs) When he entered the house, he was immediately hit with the unmistakable odor of a dead body. Then he saw blood splatter and called for backup. He first found Artie on the living room floor and John on a nearby sofa in front of the television. A trail of blood led him to a bedroom down the hall, where he found the body of Bonnie as well. All three victims had been covered in piles of blankets and clothes. Some speculated the killer was trying to hide the bodies in case someone looked in the windows But if I have learned anything from criminal minds, this is a clear sign of remorse.
1: (laughs) Well, those true crime shows often have some truths to them, even if it's fiction.
0: Either way, this triple homicide was personal. To add to that theory, nothing was taken from the house and a large amount of money was left untouched in the family safe. The evidence suggested John had been killed first. Someone had snuck up behind him while he was watching TV and smashed his head with a clawed hammer, then stabbed him in the throat to finish him off. Bonnie had been hit over the head in the kitchen and then dragged into the bedroom where she was found. Then she was beaten several more times with the hammer Then her throat was cut, which of course ended her life. The odd part was the end of her little finger had been cut off as if she had been tortured first. Finally, R.T. arrived home and walked into the living room to find his brother brutally murdered on the couch. R.T. was shot in the head near his right ear before he ever had a chance to react. His head was then also bashed in with a hammer and his throat cut for good measure, I guess.
1: Okay, I will never understand the point of bludgeoning someone and torturing them if you had a gun the entire time and could have just taken them out in point-blank range. Like, whoever did this wanted them to suffer for real. Agreed. Someone had a lot of anger for this family. Who did they assume could have done this?
0: At first, it was thought maybe the murders were connected to RT's job at Homeland Security. But officials with the Naval Criminal Investigation Services stated that they have determined there are no issues involving national security elements, end quote. As the last person to see the family alive and a close relative that lived only three miles away from the crime scene, police naturally wanted to talk to Donald. Oddly, he didn't respond to phone messages or a note left at his house by the police. Since he seemed to be avoiding their attempts to contact him, they filed for a search warrant of Donald's house. What they found led police to make an outlandish claim regarding what they believed to be the motive behind the horrific murders. County Sheriff David Morgan held a press conference where he announced that the initial investigation pointed towards some kind of ritualistic killing, saying, and I quote, it's witchcraft, I'll say that right now, end quote. When asked what brought him to that conclusion, he said, and again, this is a direct quote, the method of the murder and the positioning of the bodies and our person of interest has some ties to a faith or religion that is indicative of that. He added to his allegations of occult ties that it also coincided with what's referred to as the blue moon, which occurs every three years, end quote. The blue moon did occur that year on July 31st, the day the bodies were found, and that superstition apparently played a role in how this case was investigated. Adding fuel to the fire, they found items in Donald's house that in their minds proved their witchcraft theory. Donald openly practiced a religion called Wicca. In his home, police found a worship altar, books about witchcraft, figurines of various deities, and a Ouija board, all of which could also be found
1: at my house. And by the way, I'm not even a witch. Okay, so listen, I really hate when people who know nothing about witchcraft talk about it. I don't play with a Ouija board because I'm not inviting anyone into my home. (laughs) (laughs) However, that has nothing to do with witchcraft either me and my husband also have altars filled with books on tarot runes and voodoo that doesn't mean that we practice them i read those books strictly for learning purposes even if you did practice them none of those practices
0: support or encourage violence it's ridiculous to suggest those items had anything
1: to do with the murder without any investigation having taken place at all exactly i mean can you imagine the police blaming our murders on the books that we keep in our home
0: it's ridiculous. These items and some archaic idea of what witchcraft is led police to believe that this religion would connect Donald to having an urge to kill during the blue moon. I want to point out the absurdity in these conclusions for a minute. If police walked into a murder suspect's house and saw a crucifix on the wall, a figurine of Jesus on the mantel, and a Bible on the nightstand, they would never suggest that Christianity inspired that suspect to commit murder. Though the likelihood of a connection between Christianity and murder is exactly the same as the likelihood of a connection between Wicca and other pagan practices and murder, which is none. There are people of all faiths that do horrible things. That in no way suggests that a person's spiritual practice is the cause of an urge to commit violence. Exactly.
1: Exactly. The claims being made here are out of pure ignorance for a spirituality they simply don't understand. Like, this is a huge waste of time and an unnecessary distraction from what they could be actually focusing on.
0: Right? This is prejudice, pure and simple. They should have been looking for evidence of a motive, not getting distracted by their own biases against pagan religions. It's extremely insulting. Exactly! As you can imagine, local pagans were outraged at the suggestion that Wiccan traditions had anything to do with murder. The leader of a Pensacola-area Wiccan group, Keith Valles, responded to the comments made by the sheriff about ritual killings by saying the people involved in this tragedy were not associated with any of the area's pagan or Wiccan organizations. Nor do the murders relate to any tradition followed by pagan or Wiccan organizations. Experts in modern pagan religion and its subset, Wicca, also denounced the allegations. Quick to point out that ritual murder has no place in the nature-based religion. If the sheriff's department actually knew anything about pagan or Wiccan beliefs, they would know that while some believe the blue moon can have a mild effect on witches' magic, The most common belief is that the full blue moon will illuminate our hopes and wishes for the future, as well as an emotional burdens that we need to let go of in order to find peace. There is nothing violent about the blue moon. Regardless, police were convinced Donald was evil and must have killed his family. They brought him in for interrogation and described the murders in gruesome detail, looking for a reaction. Every description was met with seemingly shocked response from Donald with an, oh my God. Police then laid out their theory that he was the killer, which he adamantly denied. He continued to insist he didn't do it, saying, quote, I'd never harm my family. I mean, why would I do something like that? End quote. He didn't cry or get emotional, but on the video of the interrogation, his body seemed tense the entire time. They accused him of not seeming very upset about the brutal murders of his mother and his brothers. Donald offered to take a polygraph test to prove his innocence, but police turned him down, saying it wasn't necessary. Later, Donald's defense team suggested police were worried a polygraph test would show he was telling the truth and they would be back at square one with no other suspects. They never did consider any other suspects because they were convinced Donald was their guy.
1: I don't blame them, him not breaking down after losing his mothers and brothers is pretty weird, especially by the way he lost them. It was pure evil the way they died. That should have been shocking enough to get an emotional reaction out of anyone.
0: Everyone reacts differently in the face of tragedy, and it's possible he was in shock. But yeah, it is a red flag that he had no reaction at all. Now I'll hand it
1: over to Sham to walk us through what happened at the trial. They knew the witchcraft theory wouldn't hold up in court in this day and age, so they spent the next four years building a case against Donald while he sat in jail waiting for his trial. When the case finally went to trial in January of 2020, the prosecution alleged Donald had killed his family for financial gain. The judge banned any mention of witchcraft from the trial, so the prosecution had to rely on only factual evidence and witness testimony. The evidence they did have was primarily based on the fact that donald's dna was found throughout the crime scene as well as on the hammer used for the murder it was an easy counter for the defense team to point out that of course his dna was everywhere in that house it was his mother's house that he visited every week there was no other physical evidence found linking donald to the crime scene and the gun used to shoot rt was never found paper towels were found in the kitchen trash can that had been used in an attempt to clean up the crime scene suggesting that the killer wasn't worried about someone showing up, making a random intruder unlikely. The strongest piece of evidence against Donald was actually the new suggested motive of the crime. One of Donald's co-workers came forward and handed this new theory to police officers on a silver platter. He told investigators Donald had bragged sometime prior to the murders that he would inherit a large sum of money as his mom's oldest son. Police were shocked by this idea. No one assumed Bonnie Smith had much money saved up, based on the family's jobs and lifestyle. When they dug into Bonnie, RT, and John's bank accounts, they discovered nearly $900,000 between them. The question was, why would Donald kill his brothers if he believed he was in line to inherit it all? The answer was presented in court as the prosecution read Bonnie's last will and testament out loud. Conjurers, I'm going to read exactly what Bonnie's will said. And I quote, I hereby give, devise, and bequeath to my husband, Richard A. Smith, providing he will survive me. But if he does not survive me, then an equal share to my two sons, Richard Thomas Smith and John William Smith, to be theirs absolutely. I intentionally make no provision herein to the benefit of my son, Donald Wayne Hartung, not for lack of love or affection, but because he has sufficient assets of his own. End quote.
0: That is pretty cold for a mother to cut out her own child like that. I mean, it's $900,000. Even if he doesn't need it, there's plenty to go around.
1: Right, and it shouldn't matter about anybody's financial standing. For my parents and for me and my husband, we plan on leaving our kids equal shares when we pass away.
0: Now, I'm not saying Donald is innocent by any means. And the financial motive is way more convincing than the witchcraft angle. But it still feels like trying to fit a theory to a suspect rather than following the evidence unbiased.
1: Yeah. The prosecution worried that the DNA evidence and the proposed motive still wouldn't be enough to convince a jury. They needed more. Conveniently for them, a convicted felon housed with Donald while waiting trial reached out to them with a slam-dunk hearsay confession. Marlon Pierfoy testified that fellow inmates were afraid of Donald because they thought he was a witch. Marlon said he pretended to have an interest in voodoo in order to engage in conversation with him, which is when Donald confessed everything. Marlon told the court that Donald was angry with his mother for not believing that John had molested his son, Donald Jr., He continued that when Donald learned he had been intentionally cut out of the will, he was enraged and spent the next three years planning on how to go about murdering them all, in order to inherit all the family fortune himself. He added that while witchcraft wasn't the reason for the murder, Donald told him the Ouija board told him when to commit the murder. The informant knew details of how the victims were killed, including that Donald had tortured his mother before slitting her throat to get the combination to the safe. Prosecutors informed the jury that the detail about Bonnie's finger hadn't been released to the public. Defense attorney Michael Griffith did not hesitate to address the jailhouse informant's claim that Donald had confessed to the murders while in jail. He told the jury, Out of all of the people who are in and out of those cells, the state brought before you one person who is working an angle. End quote. Marlon was in prison on an attempted murder conviction from 2017, sentenced to 30 years in prison and looking to make a deal. The prosecution acknowledged Marlon had cut a deal with the state for a reduced sentence in exchange for his testimony, but she argued that his knowledge of the details proved Donald had confessed the information to him.
0: I'm so skeptical of jailhouse informants. They aren't actual witnesses. It's all just hearsay, and sometimes it's hard to know if the suspect fed them the information or if the prosecutors
1: did. I'm always under the impression that bad cops feed these informants the information that would get the suspects at hand in trouble. It's just weird that anyone would go around bragging about something they're trying to convince the jury that they're innocent of.
0: What about the family?
1: Do they think Donald could have done something like this? Donald's son, Donald Jr., also testified against his father. In his emotional testimony, he explained why he believed his father was considered the black sheep of the family. He explained that he was always separated from the rest of them. Things were only made worse after John exposed himself to Donald Jr. as a child, he testified. I don't know what happened behind closed doors, but I know that they didn't talk for a good period of time. The prosecution asked Donald Jr. if he had thought his father was the killer. He answered, I didn't question it at all. He said his father coldly broke the news of the death of his grandmother and uncles over the phone by simply saying, Son, they're dead. While he wasn't close with any of them, only seeing them a couple times a year, he was devastated by the detached way he received the news.
0: Jeez, that's a heartless way to inform your kid their grandmother is dead. But if his son isn't surprised, it does make you wonder.
1: Right? But Donald's defense team insisted that he didn't know the details of his mom's will, and had done nothing but try to help the investigators. After all, he'd willingly given his DNA, answered all of their questions, and had even offered to take a lie detector test. They argued that all the prosecution had was the word of a convicted felon looking for a sweet deal. They also called a forensic neurologist as a witness regarding Donald's state of mind at the time of the murder. The witness showed pictures and x-rays of his brain that displayed white spots on the frontal lobe that shouldn't be there, indicating frontotemporal dementia. The condition causes degeneration of the frontal lobes of the brain and impacts cognitive function and decision-making abilities. They also asked the jury to keep in mind that Donald was abandoned by his father at three months old, allegedly experienced sexual abuse as a child, and grew up in a trauma-filled environment. She brought medical records proving he was diagnosed with depression and detachment disorder, making it difficult for him to process and show his feelings.
0: I'm sorry, is his defense team trying to argue that he didn't do it, or that he's mentally unable to comprehend the seriousness of his actions? Their defense is
1: making it sound like they think he's guilty. They are giving a list of excuses as to why he may have committed a crime, but regardless of your mental state, that is never an excuse to torture and kill someone. If anything, that is more of a reason in my mind to keep you away from society.
0: I bet the prosecution jumped all over that as proof that he could have killed his family.
1: Well, the prosecution didn't dispute the medical diagnosis, but did disagree with the suggested level of impairment it would have caused. She argued the murders had been planned so carefully that it proved his mental state was still strong. She reminded the jury of their theory that Donald first cooked his family dinner, acting completely normal. Then after the murders attempted to clean up and go about his normal routine for days... No one in his life noticed him acting unusual or erratic during that time, proving that he had a clear head and should have been held responsible.
0: That is a cold, calculating murder, if that's what happened.
1: After over four years of awaiting trial, five days of jury selection, and six days of testimony, it took the jury only a little more than four hours to find Donald guilty of all three counts of premeditated first-degree murder. Prosecutors were asking for the death penalty, So now that he was found guilty, it was time to move on to the penalty phase. When someone is convicted of first-degree murder, they have to go through the penalty phase. This is where the jury will consider mitigating factors and aggravating factors. You see, mitigating factors can be any factor that would give a reason not to impose the death penalty, and aggravating factors would lend support for a penalty of death. After reviewing all of the possible factors, the jury votes yes or no for the death penalty. If it isn't a unanimous vote, then the decision goes to the judge who can decide either life in prison or the death penalty.
0: His mental condition would be a mitigating factor then, right? That must be the real point the defense was trying to make with it.
1: That's the vibe I was getting from his team. So did the jury sentence Donald to death? No, the jury couldn't agree what Donald's fate should be. So the decision was left to the judge at sentencing. Donald made a bold statement, and I quote, I love my jury. They paid close attention, but your honor, they were duped, and you were duped. End quote. He went on to criticize his legal counsel for not allowing him to testify in his own defense. In the end, his request for a mistrial was denied because he had agreed in court to the decision not to testify against himself, regardless of whose idea it was. Donald was sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. The 65-year-old is currently serving his sentence at Graceville Correctional Facility in Jackson County, Florida, which is where he will spend the rest of his life. This reclusive,
0: close-knit family was simply minding their own business, keeping to themselves and taking care of each other for years. Someone came along and senselessly took their lives. Was money the driving force behind this brutal crime as it so often is? Were investigators blinded by religious discrimination and tunnel vision, or was justice served? Either way, nothing will bring back the
1: innocent lives that were lost. Today, I want to tell you about an organization working to combat religious prejudice. Tenenbaum promotes justice and builds respect for religious differences by transforming individuals and institutions to reduce prejudice, hatred, and violence. To learn more, visit Tannenbaum.org or call 212-967-7707. To view images,
0: information, and sources from this case, visit our website at CrimeAndConjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stephen Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and podcast for our question of the week. And Crime and Conjure has finally caught up with the cool kids and is now on TikTok.
1: (laughs) Steph, what is our first Conjure tip of season four? I want to share with you all a true blue moon
0: ritual. As the blue moon rises, find a quiet space to connect with the divine energy, whatever that means to you. Place seasonal flowers, a candle, a dish of sea salt, incense of sandalwood or sage, and any talismans or crystals you'd like cleansed on your altar. Light the candle and the incense, then repeat these words or words of your own. I call upon the goddess of balance, grace, and justice. With the power of this blue moon, release any known or unknown obstacles so that I may be renewed for this next lunar cycle. This ritual, for releasing what does not serve you and
1: welcoming what awaits is in the true blue moon spirit the next blue moon is going to be august of 2023 so get out there and do a real blue moon ritual and i'm sorry to break it to you but it does not involve (laughs) murder we'll be back next week with another episode until (laughs) next time stay vigilant conjurers